0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
1: The late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience.
0: There's stories and mythology that this country has woven around Black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now?
2: And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being
1: a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts.
3: This podcast comes with a trigger warning. Uh, We are going to be discussing some pretty heavy details with regards domestic violence and sexual violence. So if you think that this conversation will trouble you and could trigger some issues for you, probably best not to listen to it. Uh, 1-800-RESPECT, 737 732 is a phone number that's available for any Australian who has experienced or is at risk of domestic and family violence and or sexual assault. Obviously, 000 is the number to call if you're in imminent danger.
1: My partner tells me of uh, incidents that happened. I don't even remember. That's how how bad it was. Um, that was because of the drinking, the substance abuse. There was a there was times I'd be violent that I don't even recall.
3: Domestic violence is at a level in Australia that that leads people to call it an epidemic. Now the statistics are unbelievable. We're talking about sort of around about half a million Australian women reporting that they'd experienced physical or sexual violence or sexual assaults in a 12-month period. 33% of Australian women have experienced physical violence since the age of 15. 19% of women have experienced sexual violence since the age of 15. We seem to lose more women every year and children to domestic violence. Women are being murdered by partners and ex-partners. And yes, I know that domestic violence affects all people and that it's possible for for women to commit domestic violence but we also know that overwhelmingly in Australia domestic violence is being committed by men against women Tommy Little and I were discussing domestic violence on our radio show not long ago and a man phoned us to say look you know it's not a case of once an abuser always an abuser you can actually fix yourself if, if this is a problem for you. And so I phoned him back and asked him if he would record a podcast with me. He did. His name's Andrew. And um, look, is it an enlightening conversation or is it manipulative? I don't know. I've certainly played it to some other people who've had lots of different attitudes toward the conversation you're about to hear. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. You can always contact me at michellelorry.com or on my Facebook page, michellelorry After this conversation, we'll hear from journalist Sarah Ferguson, who works for the ABC and has been working on a a documentary series called Hitting Home, which will air on the ABC shortly. She spent the last six months focusing her entire life on Australia's domestic violence epidemic. She has spoken to victims, perpetrators, police, uh, people who run shelters. She's, She's really gotten down and dirty with this issue. So she's heard the audio you're about to hear. And then we'll hear from her what she thinks about it.
1: Basically, I've been um, I've been charged with assault twice, convicted once, um, wow. domestic violence towards my partner.
2: Yep.
1: Um, we are together again now, mm-hmm. but we we split up for a very long time, obviously because of that. I was violent. Uh, we've been together twelve years or uh, up after about three years, I started getting violent towards her.
3: Now, prior to that, did you witness domestic violence in your childhood?
1: I was a victim of domestic violence when I was a child. Yeah. And uh, I was brought up in an environment where violence seemed completely normal to me. Mm hmm And um, as I got older and, you know, the trials and tribulations of life, things got harder. Yeah. I started abusing substances. I started drinking heavily. And after a couple of years of being with my partner... Um, we were fighting quite regularly, and the fighting became physical. Um, and my partner would do something like uh, she might push me or slap me, and that would be it. I'd go completely nuts. Uh, she had to go to the hospital a couple of times. Um, yeah, I've just just generally, I'd, I'd put pin her to the ground, punch her up, I'd choke her um, over relatively nothing. In hindsight, you know, we'd be screaming at each other about silly things, you know, money or what to have for dinner. And I'd lose my, lose my temper and, that. Yeah.
3: Can we talk a little bit more about your childhood, about what kind of violence, who was perpetrating the violence, what okay. level of violence?
1: Yep, well, um, I, uh, my, my stepfather, hmm. we, we was with my mother for nine years, uh, he was around for the majority of my childhood, we were about eight years old, he came on the scene. And uh, he was a heavy drinker, a um, full-blown alcoholic. Later on, it was found that he was uh, hes diagnosed bipolar, which mm. didn't happen at the time, but that's later in life. And um, yeah, he'd regularly go off on the uh, sort of psychotic rampages and um, always going off with my mum. Uh, I'd step in a lot of the time, or we'll try to, and they're just basically... Same sort of stuff that I ended up doing myself later in life would yeah. punch me up for no apparent reason. You know, you'd be telling him to leave the room, and he'd kick the door down, and um, That's terrifying. pin you down, punch you up, um, nearly he broke my arm one time. Um, yeah. Did any but, other uh,
3: did any other adults know what was going on in your home?
1: My mum knew about it. Uh, my mum was also a victim, but it was a situation where we kept it quiet. Yeah. It was just one of those things we didn't really talk about it. As I said, I grew up in a violent household, and I grew up with uh, violent adults around me. Uh, my, my stepfather's friends—they were all uh, bikies or big, big trucky interstateers, and you know, generally stereotypical, big, heavy drinking, violent people. Yeah. And so no one really saw anything of it. There was a couple of people knew about it. but It was just one of those things that wasn't really spoken about.
3: So your mum never never was given offered help by anyone she was never she never left and went to a shelter or anything like that
1: no they they similar situation they broke up a couple of times for a few months here and there but he'd always say he'd be better he'd he'd change and they'd get back together and things would sort of go back to the way they were yeah and just, yeah as I said just sort of left it it's one of those things every time you know, a couple of people hear about it or I'd I'd tell people about it and Nothing would ever really come of it. You know, sometimes people would think it was just the kids being a bit dramatic. And sometimes they'd uh, they talk to my stepfather, or that someone would say it's not right. And yeah, nothing was ever sort of taken to the authorities, or no one was ever offered to help out.
3: Wow, what sort of people were you telling? Were you telling people like school teachers, or these family friends, or?
1: Oh, I never told my teachers or anything. I was too afraid of yeah. getting in trouble you know, what, ha- what would happen to me on a regular basis for doing nothing, but I couldn't imagine what he would do if I told people. Yeah. So but it was just mainly friends or, you know, friends of my parents. And um, most of the time it was just as good as falling on deaf ears because everyone was, you know, heavy into drugs or alcohol. You know, they weren't really the kind of people that would sort of really care, I suppose you'd say.
3: Also, I suppose, back in our, I don't know, how old, how old are you?
1: I'm 27.
3: Okay. So I remember, I'm 42 and I remember when I was a kid, that it was very much a private matter and if mm. if your parents had suspicions about another family, they felt as though it wasn't their business to get involved?
1: Yeah, I suppose there's an element of that too, yeah. Mm. It was everyone everyone sort of, you know, the social network mm. that my parents were in and all the kids were in, you know, things would happen all the time on, you know, with the, with the other families as well. But it was, yeah, that was, like you're saying, it was pretty much their business. No one else would sort of step in. Do
3: you remember how how you felt about yourself in that scenario? Say you're, you're 10, 11, 12, it's been going on for years. Mm. You know that other adults know about it. No one's stepping in. Your mum's helpless. Mm. What I mean, what were you feeling about yourself in that time? Do you remember?
1: I, I just assumed it was a normal way of life. Mm-hmm. I thought there was nothing wrong with any of it. It was only as I got older, you know, and when I, when I started having these problems myself, I realised there was something wrong with it. And This isn't a normal way for families to behave. This isn't a normal way for your parents to treat you, or your partners. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so as a kid, I really didn't think there was much wrong.
3: So as a kid, you thought the rest of us were, were living with these rampages at night time as well?
1: Yeah, I thought, I thought all families went through that. that. Yeah. Dads would lose their temper and lash out and... Mums would just go along with it, and you know that was the way we were punished. So I just assumed that was how it happened
3: okay, but then, as an adult, when you first started getting into relationships, and certainly this this relationship, the biggest relationship in your life so far correct you did you think did you worry going into the relationship that you may end up being a perpetrator as well? Did you think about
1: it no it never crossed my mind, mm. and as I said, the first couple of years we were together, there was no issue at all, you know. It was, um, even after the, the there's been, in, my partner tells me of uh, incidents that happened I don't even remember. That's how, how bad it was. Uh, that was because of the drinking, the substance abuse. There was, a, inc- there was times I'd be violent that I don't even recall, mm. which I, I, you know, I feel greatly ashamed of, the fact that I can't even remember them. But the first time it happened, I still thought there was nothing wrong, you know, because um, my partner rang my mother and Told her what had happened, and the ambulance came to our house. And um, mum, my mum, basically took my partner aside and said, "I oh, don't ring the police," you know, which is pretty much the same sort of stuff that used to happen when I was a kid. So, so it's just again, it, at that that point in time, it just seemed pretty normal. This was this was the sort of stuff that went on as a kid, you know, with my parents, and it was starting to happen with me. And I just so your that mum,
3: your mum, your mum, who was seen. You move from victim to perpetrator mm. uh, has encouraged your partner to to deal with it the same way she did.
1: Basically, yeah. yeah. To try yeah. and keep
3: it in-house and just yeah. deal with
1: it. Yeah, just keep it private, keep it all between us. And, of course, I promised I wouldn't do it again, mm. which you know was a promise I broke.
3: But I'm assuming you mean it at the time. I mean, you must feel... I'm assuming that remorseful begging and pleading and promising it'll never happen again... You mean that at the time, yeah?
1: Yeah, I did. I, I yeah. did mean it at the time, but it was a promise. I at that point, I didn't know I couldn't achieve. Yeah. Mm.
3: Yeah. Wow. So the the violence escalates, um, yeah. and you start really following the pattern that you grew up within. That you break up, you get back together. You break up, you get back
1: together. That's correct. Yeah.
3: What's the worst the worst assault that you committed against your partner?
1: Um, I. It was actually the last time, which was in in the scheme thing, not longer, only about maybe four years ago now, three mm-hmm. four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I we were arguing over me going out all the time, because obviously obviously liking to drink. All I wanted to do after work was go out and go to the pub, go out with my mates. So I was never home, mm-hmm. and um, we started screaming as we would always do. And she got frustrated. She lashed out. She uh, I think she threw the remote control at me. I was swearing at her, calling her all the names under the sun. And I charged across the room, pinned her down in a headlock, choked her, uh, just started frantically punching her across the top of the head. No specific, you know, location or anything. I just started swinging my arm around while she was in my, you know, while she was in my headlock. Um, She said something about she was going to call the police. Uh, I dragged her into the bedroom by her hair and choked her neck and um, pinned her down and choked her and um, threw her off the bed onto the ground, kicked her in the guts a few times, and that was basically it. I, I said to her, I've had enough, I'm leaving. And that was, that was the end of that, but she ended up with uh, bruises all across her face, um, bruising all up and down her arms, um, no broken bones or anything, the but, but sprained wrist. Is this um, the
3: time you were charged and convicted?
1: That was the second time, the time I was actually convicted. Mm. First time I was charged... I convinced her to withdraw the charges. Yeah. Again, telling her I've changed, I'm different. It's not going to be like this anymore. I promise. Yeah. And I did change for a little while. I did. I did behave myself and thought I was in control of myself and what was going on. But it would turn out again that I wasn't. I slowly got worse and worse. Um, my aggression increased again. Yeah. To that point where I actually moved out. As I said, I said I committed that and moved out that night. And the next day I had a phone call from the police. Wow. Yeah.
3: So she'd plucked up the courage to actually go through with it.
1: Yep. Yep. She uh, she spoke out to her friends mm. and because she was noticeably abused at that time, at that time, you know, bruising everywhere. Yeah. You could, you know, there was no hiding it. And um,
3: that's terrifying for friends. And certainly in this climate that we're in now, friends must be saying to her, he'll kill you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was getting to that point, you know, he, that there might not be a, a yeah. next time, he says. Sorry, you know, he might not come back from this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I still thought there was really nothing wrong. I just thought that you know, she pushes my buttons, and you know, she knows what I'm like when I'm angry. You well, know, the cliche.
3: Do you know what though? You wouldn't be the only. There, there'll be people listening to this who will will ask the question of her. Mm. If you've got a violent partner, why are you why are you initiating violence? Why are you throwing a remote control at him? Why are you doing that now? I'm not. I'm not victim blaming, but it it, mm. it does seem like you're both involved in a violent sort of cycle
1: here. Oh, well, I. She she um, you know, my partner's no angel. She would, she has a temper on her, or at least she did back then. Mm. And yeah, she would she would lash out, throw things at me, and you know, she'd slap me across the face, things like that. But what I would give her in return was nowhere near reasonable action. No. For you know a, a calm, reasonable person wouldn't re- retaliate in that in the way I did, or, or at all, really. Yeah. So,
3: but it certainly feels as though you were both in need of some kind of psychological support. And
1: well, yeah, well, we've both since been through therapy. We've both since been through anger management. Yeah. And that has seemed to have worked. Thus far
3: so um, how did that all begin? so you you're charged uh, you know you can knock at the door, the police at the door, she's actually followed through with it. she's yep. called the cops and um, yep. and you're charged at this point, you still don't feel like you've done anything particularly wrong so where's where's the transition here? How do we get from there to here?
1: It wouldn't be for about another eighteen months before I realized there was something wrong with my behavior.
3: Wow
1: um, I um, went through anger management class and, and was that court the, appointed? It wasn't appointed, but suggested if I um, mm-hmm. wanted any chance of, you know, a lesser conviction or not to be convicted at all, to mm-hmm. seek actively and voluntarily seek therapy and help. Mm-hmm. So I, I did. And at that point, I was only doing it so I didn't get in trouble. Yep. You know, I wasn't doing it for the, to better myself or to fix the problem.
3: Yep.
1: But, um, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, there would be 18 months later, I was to get in trouble with the police uh, in public when I'd be out drinking oh. you know I'd be getting kicked out of bars I'd be picking fights with people friends wouldn't be helping me out they'd leave me to my own devices you know two in the morning I'm trying to start something with people or being a smart mum to them and, and just by walk this away.
3: by this stage you you've got a conviction for assault so yeah
1: correct yeah and I had a good behavior bond wow. uh, for 12 months. Yeah. Uh, so we have a son together, my partner and I. She got an AVO against me. Wow. Uh, I wasn't allowed to see my son.
3: Wow. Uh, so you're in months. you're in the system at this stage. So when the police yeah. pull you up and look at your ID, you're you're flagged. You're in the system as as a troublesome, frightening guy.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm there as a troublemaker. They they said the minute they look at my file. Yeah. So, but then it was uh, my partner had started seeing someone else.
3: Whoa, and at, what a at, trigger yeah, point for you.
1: Yeah, and at this point, I realized, you know, I still had feelings for her and started talking to her again. Mm. And basically, one day, you know, talking to her about getting back together. And at this point, she completely refused, no, never again, never again. Mm. And I went, why? Why can't it happen? And she just listed all the bad stuff I used to do. You know, all the uh, aside from the violence, the, you know, just this long list of all the negatives, including the violence and other things. I wasn't a good father either. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took a look in the mirror, and I sort of looked, looked at it and went, "Drinking? This was your drinking. You were drunk. You were hungover. You mm-hmm. were upset that you c- couldn't drink this time." Um, as I said, drinking was a really big problem for me, mm. and I realised that you know my friends don't want to hang around with me anymore. Um, people are. Frightened of me, you know, when I do drink. Mm. Um, people are frightened of my aggression. You know, um, I decided I had to do something about it, I had to change. So that's when I sought out therapy, um, ended up with a psychologist, and um, did anger management class again, mm. this time with my heart in it, actually paying attention to, the, to how to get all this under control. And obviously, it stems back to. My years have been abused and, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry. No, that's all right. My <laughs>
3: that's all right. You're doing a lot of talking. That's all right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and also self-medicating with alcohol would not be uncommon, I wouldn't think, for, pe- for for victims of childhood abuse. That would be a common reaction, wouldn't it?
1: But, but, well, the therapist said that. And, of yeah. course, growing up in an environment where drinking was such a big part of life, yeah. you know, there was never a time of day where I wouldn't see my stepfather or his friends drinking. Um, you know, they they influenced me to drink, you know, and drink heavy, you know. Yeah. And uh, so, again, it, was a, it seemed normal to drink that much.
3: Also, I, it's a very masculine crowd, isn't it? There's a certain kind of um, masculinity that's that's being expressed by bikies and, and this kind of group of men.
1: Yeah, correct. So, and I... So I naturally thought I have to be a man, yeah.
2: you
3: know, and this
1: is how you do it. You, you know, you drink heavy, you do, you know, you're big and tough, you puff out your chest, and you make yourself the toughest person in the room. You know, you. At that point in life, I thought, you know, people are meant to be scared of you. That's how you assert your dominance. That's how you get respect. Yeah. And as, as I said, realizing this was a problem and this wasn't a way of living through therapy and attending, I I attended Alcoholics Anonymous, Um, stopped drinking. The anger management got my uh, violence under control, got the ability to control myself, because anger is healthy. It's it's how you vent your anger. It's how you channel that anger. and So healthy ways to channel that anger. And um, after about maybe nearly a year of interacting with my, again, now partner, she could see I had genuinely changed. Friends could see it. I'm a lot calmer person. Uh, I'm not as easily irritable. I don't argue for the sake of arguing. I don't go looking for the fight anymore. And my partner, and while this was all going on in my life, she was getting therapy for the problems that she had and obviously the violence was one of those things. She attended anger management as well,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, as a suggestion from her therapist because it was evidence that she also had issues with anger. And now we're both in a better place. Um, I haven't been violent for uh, over three years now. I don't drink anymore. Um, I have a better ability to... I have, better, I have the tools to control the anger now. I've basically retrained myself, you know, through, the, through help with therapy to realise how a normal person would deal with these problems and how a normal person would behave when they're angry.
3: Yeah. And And now here you are speaking about being a former domestic abuser and I don't think I've ever heard anyone speak about it before because I suppose once it is in your past...
0: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
3: The last thing you want to do is let people know that it was ever there.
1: Well, it's not something that I can can forget. You know, I've I've learned a great deal from it and I regret, uh, of course I regret ever being that person to begin with and committing those acts against Because she is the person I love, she's the person I spend the rest of my life. If you don't, you shouldn't be treat. You shouldn't treat people like that, whether you're whether it's a man or a woman. Yeah. You know, violence is never the answer to anything, and the scars that it that it's left people, not just my partner. You know, her friends, the, the heartache, the stress that causes her family. Oh uh, God, I can't imagine.
3: Family. I can't imagine when she told them that you were getting back together, what their reactions were.
1: Yeah. Well, we've, given we've broken up and gotten back together so many times. Mm. But, you know, it was nerve wracking for me. I, you know, to see her family again. Mm. Um, but they seem to have accepted her judgment, and they they seem to, you know, I, I get along reasonably well with most of them now. Mm. They, they they you know, there was a point in the time where I, I wouldn't go anywhere near them or be in the same room as them. But yeah, they, it, I I never hide the fact that that was the person I used to be because it's something that people need to know that. Most men, you know, my theory is that most men that are like that do have demons and the people we are closest to are the people we hurt the most when we don't know how to deal with these demons. And that's that's why I rang this morning, you know, because, you know, Chris Brown, I don't know whether he's changed or not, you know, it all might be taught,
3: but Mm.
1: you, you can't condemn anyone, man or woman, because, you know, there are women out there that do commit domestic violence towards their partners as well. Yep. Yeah. You, you you can't condemn anyone for the mistakes they've made in the past if they've learnt from it and they have shown that they do want to change you know everyone should be given a fair a fair go given the benefit of the doubt
3: yeah i suppose i i think i realized thinking about that chris brown conversation about the tweets that he had sent out there saying that he really would welcome the opportunity to talk about his past and to talk about domestic violence because that is his past i thought yeah we really do assume that a domestic abuser is one for life can never change will never change yeah. um and now you know you're you're telling us that after a lot of therapy mm. and obviously you're a, you're a really smart guy you're a really self-aware guy um
1: you have, to, you have to be to make these changes. Yeah. You, have to, you have to really take a look at yourself in the mirror and see what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, can't, you can't be happy with the person you are until you... Well, you, you, got to, you, you can't realise the problem until you hit rock bottom, I suppose is the best way to describe it. So you have to be able to hit that point to realise you need a change and you need to fix yourself.
3: What would you say to an eight-year-old child who approached you now and told you that they were living through violence at home?
1: Straight away, contact the police. Talk to your teachers, friends of the family. You know, be vocal. You know, it may, it may be risky. You may be scared about doing so, but, but in the long run, it'll prevent anything happening to you or any other members of your family. It'll be better than it'll be better than the alternative, I suppose is the best way to describe it.
3: Mm-hmm. And, and of
1: course, and of course I'd, set, I'd help them. I'd be there for
3: them. Yeah.
1: No one should have to live that, live through that.
3: It is a responsibility for all of us to be aware of and take, you know, be involved if we have to be. No one wants to be involved in something like this. What would you say to a man listening who is committing violence in his family?
1: Yeah, just same same as me. Take a look in the mirror. You know, if people are telling you there's a problem, or if people are you know, avoiding you, you, you can you know that you know there's a problem. You know, whether, whether you sort of shrug it off and think it's okay, you know it's not you know, seek help because in the long run, you're going to lose everything that matters to you.
3: Yeah, and and there is help there. It sounds like you are the beneficiary of some kind of treatment that's made you feel mm. okay about yourself in mm. all of this.
1: Well, I'm okay with the person I am now. Yeah. I, don't, I don't like looking back at the person I used to be. Yeah. Um, but, but I I'm, guess there's uh, a
3: fear in people about sometimes about accessing Support like that, support services, getting counselling, there's a fear that you're just going to end up feeling like shit about yourself and someone's going to sit there and point out all the reasons why you're a bad person.
1: Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, I, I when I decided this is wrong and I have to do something, it just started out with a simple appointment with my GP. Okay. And I went and sat down with him and told him what was wrong and just that's where it started. He gave me referrals to therapists yep. and suggested going out for my specific problem with drinking, AA. Yeah. And just went on from there, and it only got better. You know, it is nerve-wracking. It is embarrassing at first to speak about it. But you, they don't judge. Yeah. You know, the counsellors or therapists, helplines, anyone you speak to, they don't judge. And that's the best part about it, you know. Once you get over that fear of being judged and you ex- you accept what you have done and the only way to fix it is to move forward, it makes it so much easier.
3: Yeah, and that sounds like the actions of a real man to me.
1: Yeah, well, many people. When it, as I said, I've openly discussed this with anyone that asked. Many people have said it's a very courageous thing to do. Mm. Um, it's manning up in the real sense, unlike the previous uh, theory I thought of manning up. Yeah. Swinging, swinging punches isn't manning up. You know, admitting you've got a problem and doing something about it is manning up.
3: ABC journalist Sarah Ferguson has spent the last six months embedded in Australia's domestic violence problem. Uh, she's spent time in women's shelters, with police, with victims, with perpetrators, in prisons. There's not much she doesn't know about our current situation and she's also been able to have a listen to the the audio that that you and I have just listened to uh, with a man who who phoned me at the radio station to talk about his... Experience and his life as a domestic abuser. Sarah presents a documentary series called "Hitting Home," which will air on the ABC shortly.
2: Shame and embarrassment, and particularly embarrassment, is one of the most um, it's one of the most common responses that people people tell lies to each other about it because they're embarrassed.
3: Yeah, not only just to have been assaulted, and, and, yeah, but, but to but admit... but that they
2: chose a, yes. a, a dreadful person as their partner and that they remained, and in many cases, remain committed to someone who is objectively dreadful. Even when their friends when, course, and family are saying to them, what are yeah, you doing, get out of right. there. that's right. And so they stop... One, one of the really dangerous things is that people stop talking about what happens because they know people are going to say, yeah. you know what I think about him, and yet they still want to be with him.
3: Yeah, and I've certainly had conversations with people about friends of theirs where they've said, well, I just washed my hands of her now. I mean... Yeah, that's right. You know, I've had to walk away because she won't do anything about it and...
2: Yeah. So, you know, the police dealt with that for years where they'd turn up to what they called domestics and they'd be, you know, they'd, you know, move move on the bloke and the the partner would turn around and say, bloody hands off him. Mm. And in a personal realm, that... That's, it's exactly the same thing, that, and, and that is the most dangerous thing. It's the thing we probably one, one of the things we need to learn that we mustn't. At that moment, where you feel frustrated, you just have to keep trying to get them help.
3: Yeah, absolutely. That is the imperative moment, isn't it? When you yeah, it is
2: exactly because that's probably when they it's getting into its most intolerable um, phase and perhaps the most dangerous. And if they're going to do anything about leaving or challenging that control, they need help and people around them, and they need to be you know to be safe at that moment.
3: Andrew, the man we just heard from, um, I mean, one of the most harrowing details of his story that he was telling us was when he assaulted his wife and she phoned his mother to try and get help, and his mother said to her, don't call the police, darling, we don't call the police. Uh, she. His, his mother had been a victim of domestic violence as well, and so...
2: That, you know, it's that line, we don't call the police, and yeah. it's a kind of common understanding that we know that this is something that occurs and that... It's a situation you just have to get on with. That 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 line resonates resonates with me because it's a line I heard from a lot of people. You know, families knew, and they'll even send them packing. You know, we've had I had women who'd gone to their families, and the families had said, "You know, go home and sort it out." Yeah, as if you can sort someone causing you to live in or indeed hurting you.
3: Yeah, and your children beyond but anybody's capability. I
2: mean, what I took from it too,
3: though, was that to to Andrew's mother, she she knew that Andrew was a victim of domestic violence as a little boy in her home. And so I wondered how, how it felt for her then to have her son grow up to be a perpetrator and, and was she ever able to blame him? And you, you know, I wondered how much of that was tied up. How, how much of you, of that are you seeing in offenders?
2: Well, this is, it's interesting actually, because the two, the two main offenders that we speak to in prison um you know, one of them was Adam, and that he grew up in a you know in a healthy, happy relationship. Um, um, but what what you know is, but in his case, there's a lot of violence in this in in the in the in, the, in his wider family, not in his immediate family. So that sort of tolerance of violence is is a is a problem, or the acceptance that it exists. Mm. But I think that. It's so complicated, isn't it? Because if you put your children, if you endanger your children effectively, either directly or indirectly through growing up in that situation, you've got, you know, looped layers of shame, haven't you, about what happened to you um, and then bringing up children in that environment. So I I, I think that's a very tough load for someone to manage. Mm. That doesn't mean you should turn someone away. Obviously, no one should ever be turned away. It's a little bit like there's a lot of things in this universe i found that are akin to what we've learned about child sex abuse. You know, how many victims of child sex abuse either were um, turned away when they went for help or felt Mm -hmm. they would be, and that there there are some similarities, both in the undoing, the undressing of the soul that takes place in these relationships, but also that fear of what people will say, fear and shame being still so potent. Yeah, and the terrible
3: revelations of the inquiry into child sex abuse on Australia, mm. I guess, is the reason why there's a, a movement to get an inquiry going about domestic violence in Australia. That's it certainly
2: a, feels like it's time, doesn't it? That, that's right. I mean, the, the the about trying to manage human... Relationships, and that's why the court seemed to be such a difficult area because you know it's one thing having to face your aggressor in court if he jumped out from behind a bush, but facing your aggressor whom you've lived with for 15 years just seems a court, a a court, there's no way you can almost impossible, not no way that's wrong, very difficult to go through that. Well, to be cross examined, to be cross examined, I know, (laughs) I mean, I couldn't believe that. I know, at least, at least in her case, she had been prepared through a. These new um, prosecutor clinics that at least warn you to try and get you to, you know, accept that it's not about you. Yeah. But how can anybody feel that? Because what you know, you step out, you take the decision that you're going to do something about it, you go for help, and then you're in this very formal environment where a bloke in a tie is basically telling you you're a liar. Yeah. you know who of us could withstand that not many i don't think
3: you know what else an aggressive man i just i was watching mm. it and i thought wow that's what you need isn't it another man staring you in the yeah. face and telling you
2: you're lying about you're lying and that's you know there are much worse than him and yeah. i've I've, always, I've i've felt that about the family court too you know these are not environments where um serial court process works yeah. so i think there's trials of those specialist Domestic violence courts in Queensland are really interesting. I'm sure that's where we'll end up. Um,
3: are we? Is this epidemic increasing, or are we hearing about domestic violence more? I think
2: it's the latter. Okay. Uh, certainly, in terms of the the violence against women, I mean, the numbers are you know incredibly shocking. But I think we weren't counting before. Yeah. So, in certainly the coroner, um, they have death review teams for domestic violence, and they say that over ten years. The numbers of deaths due to domestic violence are are constant, that they're not going, they haven't gone up. Okay. Um, you know, it's always very hard to distinguish between events and reporting. And indeed, the police say that what we're seeing, their kind of, their assessment is we're, you know, notwithstanding the huge numbers of cases they deal with, probably about one in three, it's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And they couldn't, they couldn't, I don't think they could handle the iceberg. They they know that they don't have the resources to handle the iceberg. Um, you know, there there is an enormous advantage to talking about it. We know that that at least is a is a huge piece of progress that people talk about it. So now that's a, good. We that's progress.
3: Yeah, here's a difficult question. Um, you've spent six months of your life completely immersed in, yes. the, in the in the the question of Australia's epidemic. Um, mm-hmm. of domestic violence did you come anywhere near thinking about some kind of root cause or some kind of cultural circumstance that's got us to this place
2: well you you can't avoid it you can't avoid it really because so much of the first first of all so much of the um even if you come back from the bigger questions of gender inequality and you, and they are unavoidable i didn't want to focus on that because um it's not how most people. It's not the prism most people use to view their lives, and what you want is the most raw and um, close account of someone's life. And so you you have to you have to let them tell that in, in 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 the terms and in the way that they see it. Now, one of the things that really took me aback was the continued strong desire in all the women I've met for a successful marriage and not just a relationship marriage and I I was a bit surprised not there's nothing wrong with that um but I was surprised that the institution of marriage battered as it is hadn't still has that that potent place at the center of people's expectations and that it overrides mistreatment.
3: Yeah, you're so right. A lot of them spoke of that,
2: about I
3: didn't get married to break up, to, to, breakup, to you divorce. Know, that's
2: right. So that, that took me back a little bit, but to come back to your question about the wider causes and the gender, the thing that, one of the things that struck me most forcefully about this was that there are questions to be asked about how we raise women. Now, I'm careful here because this isn't about blaming victims, but at the same time you know, attention should be focused on the perpetrators and why they do it. That's the first thing. But secondly, we do have to ask questions about how we. I don't like. I really hate the word empower. It's a horrible word, mm-hmm. but it's the expectations we build into into young girls' lives. I think that's that's the question. Mm-hmm. That nurturing that is encouraged in young girls, but at what? but with no limits. This is the problem that it seems to me that we're encouraging young girls to still be able to nurture, because that's, of course, crucial, but we don't set limits on that. So we don't say, but not at any cost. Mm. Yeah. And it seemed to me that the women I met had been encouraged in that nurturing role, but no one had told them that there should be limits. You know that Now, the, the complicating factor is that as we were saying before, what domestic violence does, like child sexual abuse, is it undoes the soul. So the idea—you lose your agency, you lose your capacity to see yourself as others see you. You come to believe the messages you're given very, very quickly as well. You know, it's a—it's a rape of the soul. It really is, and fast. So, you know, the idea that you then turn around and blame the victim for not leaving is ludicrous because mm-hmm. all of that—the—the the control that the heart of domestic violence has already done its work at the time that you would consider leaving. You've already been messed with significantly. And that's what people forget. They think, they look at people in these situations and say, why don't they leave, assuming that they are in the same state of mind that they are in. It's the permanent selfishness of the observer. You know, I wouldn't let that happen to me. So why does she let that happen to her, Mm. which ignores the probably six months, one year, five year history of being worked on by the cult leader, which is effectively what these guys are. Mm. But you also... Um, also, um, But that's about the women. So the question is, if you're not taught that there are limits to your nurturing, then you're going to be vulnerable.
3: Yeah. And you also cover the the fact of the matter, which is that leaving is the most dangerous time. Um, We know statistically that, that most women who are murdered... Through domestic violence are murdered during or after the process of trying to leave the relationship, and in fact, there's one woman that you speak to who says, "At least when I was living with him, I knew when my breaks would come. I knew when he was going out, yeah. when he might come home, and all of that. And I knew I had a break, but now I don't know where he is or what it's he's permanent. doing." Yeah, yeah. So that was
2: that. That's potent. That however, um, however, however, insidious and excruciating the fear that she lived in before she. She did what humans do in all bad situations: is that she managed it. She parcelled yeah. it up into manageable chunks. And now, as you say, her fear is constant. And that that thing about leaving, you know, in the in two, we have a story of a young woman who was murdered after she left her partner. And it's very powerful, not least because all her friends and her mother, her father had passed away earlier. But her mother and her friends, you know, they they were a little bit worried about her. He was stalking her a little bit, but n- none of them considered murder you know none of them knew even when we did the very last interview with the very last friend and I said "Do you know that the uh the 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 most dangerous period of all Mm. is I think it's between um it's either either between one and three months or it's around the three month mark
3: yeah
2: so I can't begin to understand that you leave someone and then three months later you kill them
3: yeah yeah which is what
2: happened in this case yeah no, I didn't. I didn't know that, and I think most people they may they may it may ring a bell, but mm. the idea that it doesn't make you safe, and yet you must leave. <laughs> well, and as you said
3: before, I mean the fact is that none of this makes sense to those of us who are lucky enough to not be living with it.
2: That's right. That's right. So you look at it from the outside, and of course, when you look retrospectively at a narrative that ends with somebody dead, everything looks like a red flag. Yeah. But if you've got someone who's got you know a, a, an unpleasant, aggressive partner left him you, you you assume that she's moving on stalking harassment and in his case the thing that's really interesting about him there was no violence prior to uh. um or, or you know next to no physical um events of any kind just one tiny little incident before the murder but he you know in the, during the relationship there were no strong signs that he was physically violent except he was verbally abusive and this is this is a real tell this one that people who use foul language and are verbally abusive are capable of anything
3: i've got a phone number for you if this these conversations have raised some issues for you personally and if you need help 1-800-RESPECT That's 1-800-737-732. It's a 24-hour national sexual assault, family and domestic violence counselling line for any Australian who has experienced or is at risk of family and domestic violence and or sexual assault. And obviously, 000 is the phone number you need to call if you are in imminent danger. Please take care of yourself. No one is suggesting that there are any easy answers to any of this. But um, I think reaching out has got to be the first step.